Well, good morning, everybody. You can open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. We're continuing in our series that we've entitled, The Unbelievable Gift. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7, as we have throughout this series, reflecting on what it means to receive the gift that God has given to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. You know, during the Advent season, we recognize the brokenness and the darkness of the world in which we live. The world is not yet all that God intends to remake it into. Yet the world is not left as it once was, dark after the fall of Adam and Eve, without a constant hope that the God of all redemption has sent His Son into this world to be the hope and light of the world. And that's what this passage talks about. This living in the in-between time as we are constantly living in the reality of the King that has come and is coming again, Advent. So would you join me as we read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and eternal word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. When we think upon this passage and what it means for us, the invitation is for us to reflect on the idea that God has given us an unbelievable gift. But too often, to be, to be truthful, we look over words like uh, the, the litany that we find naming this, this forthcoming one from God that Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ, and, and we don't spend much time thinking about it. And so this whole series has been an invitation to reflect 
on what it means to have been given this incredible gift from God. What does it mean to have been given light in a dark world? What does it mean to have been given a wonderful counselor who will lead us, guide us, correct us, and direct us, and always be there for us? And what does it mean to have a mighty God come to us in the form of a baby? And today we'll be reflecting on the next phrase there in Isaiah 9, 6, what does it mean for a child to come as an everlasting father? As Tracy pointed out so well during the children's message, that's not something we think of. You don't look at a baby and say, that's an everlasting father. Now, I'm going to tell you today that we're going to have you put on your thinking caps pretty hard today, okay? Because there's some things we want to be very careful to not say. And we'll talk about that as well, all right? Because we don't want to confuse the nature of God himself. But it might be helpful for us as we're thinking about what it means for Jesus to be God's gift to us as an everlasting father. We can think of it in these three themes that you'll see there on the screen. First, we can think of the fact that the son really is an everlasting father. We can also think about the fact that the Son reveals to us His loving Father. And then we can see how the Son reconciles us to His loving Father. So those will be the three key themes that we'll be looking at throughout today's message. That the Son really is a loving Father, that He reveals His loving Father, and that He reconciles us to His loving Father. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 9-6 as we think about this idea that the Son really is a loving Father. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting, or you you could think of it, really, it's the same word uh, and is translated this way in so many English Bibles, eternal, all right? Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And Theo's going to preach a wonderful message, I know, next week on Prince of Peace. We're excited about that. But today, we want to think about what does it mean for him to really be a loving father? Now, I told you we're going to put, ask you to put on your thinking caps here, okay? As Christians, we believe in a triune God, okay? That word has to be created for Christian theology. We don't have a lot of triune things in this world. We are saying that there are three persons in one God. Okay, And it is very important that we not confuse the nature of God. So here's some things we aren't saying when we say that Jesus is an everlasting Father. We are not saying that Jesus and God the Father are the same person. We are not saying that. They are not. There is a distinction in the personhood of God between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we cannot say that what the Bible is saying here in Isaiah is something it directly contradicts elsewhere. What we are saying is that while Jesus is an everlasting father, he is not the father God. Does that make sense? Okay. There's another thing that we are saying. We are saying that they are two persons 
of the one God. We are not saying that there are three gods, but there is one God in three persons. So while Jesus is an everlasting father, he is not separate from the father. He's not disidentified or he doesn't have a different personality or different character from his father. To help us think this through, the church has for about uh, well, 1,700 plus years used a helpful tool called the Nicene Creed. So, we're going to read the Nicene Creed here. This is ancient church theology summarizing what all of the apostolic fathers had been taught by people who had been taught who were with Jesus. And this is what they said when they're trying to describe the nature of God. Okay? So, here's what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Okay? One God, but then... The Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. He's begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Is your mind blown already? Yeah, that's a lot in just one paragraph. Um, So, very important. You see, they're talking about the fact that there is one God, and now they've talked about God the Father and God the Son, who is of the Father, of the same essence as the Father. He has the same godliness. He's not less God in all of his attributes. He's light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. It goes on to talk about the historical work of Jesus. Through him, Jesus, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit. Wait, do you see the third person of the Trinity being introduced here? He became incarnate. He became enfleshed, or as Pastor Bruxy Cavey likes to say, you guys have heard me say this before. I think it's very helpful to us. Think of Jesus as God con carne, right? God in flesh, all right, with flesh on. So he became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. Okay, so we believe in God the Father, believe in God the Son, who is of the same essence, character, being as the Father, yet two persons, right? We've been introduced to the Holy Spirit. And then the Nicene Creed goes on to say, and not only do we believe in God the Father, God the Son, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord. The Holy Spirit's also the Lord, the one true God, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. Now, for over 1,700 years, The church has taken these words and said, if you don't believe that, you are not a Christian. That is the essential truths of the Christian faith. If they boil down the entire teaching of the New and Old Testament, it would come down 
to those words that you just read. Okay? That's the essence of what we know about a triune God. This is not easy to understand, okay? But for today's message, here's what I want you to reflect upon in this particular thing. That when in this passage, Isaiah says that a child would be born, a son will be given, and his name shall be everlasting father, that does not mean that Jesus and God the Father are the same person, okay? They are distinguishable. There is an everlasting father that is God the Father, and Jesus also is a father. You may find it helpful to think of it this way. Just because I am a son does not make me also not a father. Does that make sense? Now, there's limitations to that analogy because I haven't existed forever. And I was born not begotten. <laughs> All right? But, but I want you to see that Jesus also really is an everlasting father himself. And we'll reflect on that reality a little bit as well. So in his own way, Jesus is our everlasting father. We're not taking away anything from God the father, but we are saying also Jesus is our everlasting father. He carries the same attributes that his father does. He also is eternal, right? He has always existed. We read this earlier in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, in uh, the scripture reading for the day, where there's this prophecy that from Bethlehem will come one from, it, from that little no-name town to be a ruler in Israel. And then notice this, that his times of coming forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. From the days of eternity, he's eternal in that same way that his father is eternal. And just as the person becomes our father because they pre-exist us, God the Father is our father because he is our creator. But Jesus is also our creator. For by him, scripture says in Colossians chapter 1, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Told you we were going to stretch your minds today, right? So Jesus is our father because he has the same attributes as his father. He is also eternal and he is also our creator. He is also our sustainer in the same way that God the Father sustains all that has been created, matter and space and time and every type of environment from deserts to vast oceans and from the depths of space to the depths of the sea and the core of the, the earth. All of it holds together because of the work of the Father, but also because of the work of Jesus. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So just think, just for a minute here, what I just said to you. How is Jesus your real and everlasting Father? He pre-exists you and all things that have been created. So He's the Father in the sense that He's pre-existent, right? He's the Father in that He's the progenitor, the creator of all things. That's what makes somebody a father, and a father provides for his family and for his children, correct? Well, God the Father sustains all of life and holds all of matter together, but so does the Son. 
Jesus himself also sustains all things. And these truths are not something that they came up with at Nicaea in the three, late 300s. What if I told you these truths are ancient beyond all of that? What if there were prophecies that said that Jesus is the everlasting Father because He takes on a role in humanity where He is both the root of David's kingdom and David's lineage and its shoot. It is, he is both the, the source of all that comes forth in humanity and also is an offspring of humanity. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah, by the way, prophesied 800 years before Christ. He said, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. The kingdom of David had been cut off and was being destroyed during the time of Isaiah. Yet he said, even though it's being cut down, and even though we're going to see a far worse devastation than we've already seen, and the world is very dark, there's going to come forth a shoot from the stump, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. But just a few verses later, he says something about that shoot. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. We can say that Jesus really is an everlasting father because he is the root of the divine kingdom that he is building up in this world, and he is also its offspring. The miracle of Jesus' birth is found that God entered into humanity both as its author and as its offspring. Is that not mind-blowing to you? Think about what I just said, that God would enter into time and space that He created in order to fulfill His purpose. You might as well get the idea of an author entering into a book that he has written while upholding all of the book itself and being in control of the narrative as a whole. Wow. So we can say that Jesus really is our everlasting father because he has those attributes that his father has. But you might think of it this way. That might be another way to help you. You could think of Jesus as being like a father figure. Some of us had really great dads. Some of us didn't have really good dads. Some of us may not have had a dad or have lost our dads in this world. But maybe God has graced us in our lives with people who are father figures in our lives. Mentors, perhaps at work or a teacher teacher, or perhaps uh, somebody who's been a spiritual uh, mentor, encourager, and we say, this person's like a father to me, or like a mother to this person. Well, Jesus is like a father figure. In fact, most theologians, when they read this whole section here in Isaiah 9, they're saying that Jesus is like a benevolent king who has adopted the people as his own family, and he's adopted a fatherly posture towards his people. So think of it this way. We talk about George Washington as what? The father of our nation, right? The ideals, the values of those founding, what do we call them? Fathers are the ideals that the American nation tries to draw out, right? 
In that sense, they precede us and they create the values and the the world and the ethos in which we live. Now, the Bible uses this use for uh, father as well. uh, Job, by the way, was spoken of as a father because he cared for the needy. And so we find this in Job 29, 16. He says, I was a father to the needy. Now, that doesn't mean he had a bunch of biological children that he let go destitute, right? It meant that he adopted the needy and brought them in to be like his children and to provide for them and care for them, right? We could think of how that might be used in that term. Uh, In the book of Isaiah, we find this same type of analogy used. Eliakim is going to come as God's representative before the kingdom of Israel falls. He'll be what Isaiah calls a tent peg on which the kingdom will rest. But even Eliakim, a righteous and good leader for the children of Israel, will not be able to carry the weight of God's people. That tent peg will break and God's kingdom, the children of Israel, be taken into captivity. Well, as Isaiah is prophesying this, this is what he says about Eliakim. He says, in that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and he will, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So he's saying there will come a king like George Washington. He'll be like a father to the nation of Judah for a period of time. Well, in this way, Jesus is also truly an everlasting father. He didn't just biologically create us. He doesn't just biologically or materially provide for us. He really is an everlasting father because he enters into time and space to provide for us and create for us and sustain us and create a culture and an ethos for us, the people of the kingdom, to live in. The miracle of the incarnation is that the exalted one dwells not with the arrogant, the prideful, the successful, the people who have their act together, but with people who acknowledge their need for somebody to live a life they could not have lived and who truly are repentant of their sins, somebody who's humble and contrite. In Isaiah 57, this is what we learn about Jesus For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, this is God the Father who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, but also, also this God somehow dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Not just in a spiritual way, but in Jesus in a physical way. Where is Jesus born? In a manger. With immigrant parents trying to get registered for a government census. Right? Fleeing from persecutors. Being raised in a foreign land and then dragged to the back end of nowhere because that's his father's solution to keep him from being executed. Literally, Jesus dwells with the humble, the lowly, the contrite, And that's good news for you and me. Because he didn't come to hang out with people who had everything together. He came for the people who could acknowledge their need. 
Here's one other way to think of this when we talk about Jesus really being an everlasting father. Think about it this way. Jesus is relating to you and to me as a father. If somebody came to you and said, I know, I know that I am not your biological father, but I want to have a father-son, a father-daughter relationship with you. This is actually how Jesus approached the world around him. Yes, while he's there, think about it this way. When he is in the temple as a child and his parents go and find him there, he says, he says to his biological parents, I have to be about the business of my father, right? And he treats them like their children who need to be instructed. Indeed, he treats all of the top religious leaders as people who need to be instructed. What if I told you Jesus actually referred to people who were quite a bit older than him as children in his life. Um, he did this when he was healing people. There's a much older woman who for years and years has suffered from a great disease. She reaches out to Jesus, touches him. And Jesus says to her, what? He doesn't call her mother. He says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Did you ever catch that before? Jesus is referring to a woman who is much older than him, and he says, daughter? Because, of course, Jesus is preexistent. He's the creator, sustainer, and he sees her as his offspring. He relates to us as that way. Or when he's forgiving a young man who's been paralyzed, what does he say to him? Take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, my son. He's relating there as if the young man is his child. This is the nature of Jesus Christ. He is always in the business of relating to us as a father to children. He is leading us and he is always in the business of revealing God to us. Now, we're going to talk more about that in just a second, but take a look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, not only the firstborn incarnate one, the only begotten son of God, but he's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. Okay, so Jesus really is an everlasting, loving Father to all who come to Him in faith, right? But there's more. There's more here. This Son is in the business of perfectly revealing His loving Father to us. Uh, in John chapter 14, one of Jesus' disciples is recorded as coming to Him, and he's been with Jesus for uh, years probably at that point. He's been in the ministry. He's seen Jesus healing. He's seen Jesus forgiving. He's seen Jesus stop the storm and everything else. He's seen all these amazing things, seen Jesus feed thousands of people. And he says, okay, 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 you might be who you say you are, but just show us the Father God. Then I'll believe you. That's my last doubt. Just, I, I need a vision you ever feel like that? You need God to show up in, in some spectacular way. Show me the vision. And here's what Jesus says to him. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen 
the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, you might have met fathers and sons that look a lot alike. One's just older than the other, right? But that would not be a good analogy for what Jesus is saying. He's not saying, I'm just a little bit like my dad. He's older than me, though. He's saying, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father Himself. He's going to go on and say, I and the Father are one. We're so inseparable in essence, in character, and in being. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father God. That's mind-blowing. But Jesus is an everlasting Father because whenever we see Him, we see the Father God in all of His fullness. One of the reasons that's hard for us to grasp is this, that none of our earthly fathers perfectly demonstrate the holy other reality of our heavenly father. Maybe you had a really good father, as I said earlier. Maybe you had a really bad father. Maybe you had an abusive father. Maybe you had a missing father who might have abandoned you. Maybe you had a father who left you through death out of no intention of their own. None of us, though, no matter what kind of earthly father we had, had a perfect father, a complete father. None of us had a father who perfectly revealed Father God to us. But that's exactly what Jesus is claiming to do and to be. When we see Him, we see the Father God. In Isaiah 43, we find there that we have a problem with our fathers. Do you know what our problem is? That from Adam on, every father we have ever had, no matter how great they are, they're sinners. Our first father sinned, and we've all lived in a fallen world, and our fathers were all broken. They had all been sinned against as well. And so down through the millennia, father after father after father has all experienced both being sinned against and being broken and being imperfect. And even if they were people who sought God's redemption and favor, they were still sinners. They were never going to be a perfect reflection of the Father God. And by the way, it's through the best of our fathers, the one who actually didn't live in a broken world and grow up in a broken world, that came these three things. Sin and brokenness and death. See, Adam didn't grow up in a broken world and didn't have a broken father. He only knew God as his father. And yet it's through him that sin came into the world through him. And through that, death because of sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. From that moment on, even without that chain of brokenness, 
Adam takes us into a place of brokenness as the father of sin and the father of brokenness and the father of death. So in this world in which we have lived, in which none of us have seen a perfect father, Jesus enters as the perfect reflection of his father. So when Jesus enters into the world, we can see what a father is actually supposed to be like and what the father God actually is like because Jesus is that perfect reflection of the glory of his father. Puts it, uh, scripture puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The word there, image, translated in English is the word icon. Now, you guys know what icons are, right? We use them all the time in our computers and our smartphones. You use a little icon, you tap the icon, and that activates a program. But the problem we have there is that Jesus isn't just some tapped reflection of a deeper reality. He is the deeper reality itself. And so the reason Jesus is able to reflect this is not just because he's a mirror, but because he wholly is all that his Father is. So what does that mean for you and me? It means that God the Father and Jesus our everlasting Father know our weaknesses and have compassion on us in our weaknesses. Psalms 103, by the way, contains an extended reflection on the fatherhood of God. And if you reflect on it, you find there in verse 13 these words, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. There is no sin No weakness, no brokenness, no fear, no frustration, no doubt, no faithlessness, no inward reality that you have or anything that you have ever done that your Father God does not know. And His response is not bitterness and anger and frustration. It's not slapping you around and telling you to straighten up your act. He's never run out of patience for you. His response, his fundamental orientation is compassion. You know, the second commandment is to not take God and try to to in some way worship Him that he is not to be worshipped, right? So when the third commandment comes and it says we're not to take the Lord's name in vain, what it's really saying is this, stop trying to make God into your own image and talk about him like he's like you. So I want to ask you again, is your image of God in your head, a God who looks more like your weaknesses of your earthly father or he looks like that? Do you believe that God's fundamental orientation towards you is always compassion? Now, we could point out also That for some people who maybe had parents who were perhaps not good parents, they were just lenient parents. 
Parents who never wanted to correct or redirect their children. Parents who, in fact, didn't think it was really, in some way, good for them to challenge their children to grow up into health and maturity. So we need to understand that the compassion of God does include discipline for His children. He disciplines us in our sin to bring us back to Him. Proverbs chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 12 point out that we are not to despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord is in the business of reproving Him who loves. God's discipline is not separate from His love. We may have only had parents that punished us out of frustration or fear or out of their imperfections, but God never treats us that way. When He disciplines us, it's in order to reorient our hearts and minds back to him. And it is not his forever orientation. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He takes all of that and recognizes this reality that he's reshaping us towards him. And when we look at Jesus, we see that God's grace and mercy exceed and fulfill his justice. Sin will be punished but God's mercy and grace will always be greater. Psalms 103, reflecting on the Father heart of God, says this, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. That's not who God is. Scripture says this, that God is not in the business of making you and me pay the penalty for our sins. Your father is not saying to you, you've got to in some way pay for or atone for your sins. He is saying those sins must be paid for. And then he says, so I'm going to send my perfect son to pay for those sins for you. Psalm 103 verses 10 through 12 says this, that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor does He repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. God says, your sins must be paid for, but I'm going to remove them from you. As a perfect father, He says, my son, you have paid the penalty, or you deserve a penalty, but I'm going to take that upon myself. And this is the father heart of God that we see in the life of Jesus Christ. You say, well, okay, but, but see, here's the deal. No matter how great my dad was, no matter how amazing he was, there was always a limit to his patience. <laughs> there was always a limit to his strength. There was always a limit to his capabilities. And I, I tell, as, as a father, I feel that. I come to the end of my patience. I come to the end of my abilities. I come to the end of my strength to the point where I'm just weary and worn out. But that is not the nature of the love of God. It never runs out of strength. It never runs out of compassion. It never runs out of an ever-flowing stream of His grace. Instead of living out of his emotions, the father heart of God drives him to live out of covenant commitment to you and to me. Psalm 103 reflecting again says this about the father love of God, but the steadfast love of the Lord 
is from everlasting to everlasting. Do you know what that means for you and me? Tomorrow morning, no matter what you do today, the love of God will be there for you. As much tomorrow as today. His love is steadfast. It's towards those who fear Him and He brings His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember to do His commandments. Now, Maybe you feel like you came today and you feel like you're very, very far from home. Maybe you feel like you've run away from the Father God this week. You ran away by looking at pornography. You ran away by giving in to bitterness and fear. You ran away by giving in to unbelief. You ran away by just ignoring Him and being worried and frustrated and overwhelmed with the season. Or maybe your life was filled with so many good things you gave God so little thought and you gave Him no thanksgiving and no understanding of the works that He was doing. You ever felt like you're so far away from God that you're not sure you can find your way back home. Well, here's the thing. Your father seeks out the lonely, the abandoned, and the captive. Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. He demonstrates the heart of his father that we find in Psalm 68. He is father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary or the lonely in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The nature of God is to pursue people who are captive and alone and broken and scared. And when you turn around, what you will find is that the fundamental orientation of God is like a father. You, you've wandered off far off into the wilderness and there you cry out in the darkness and what you find is that your father was right there behind you the whole time. He's there. So we've seen that the Son really is a loving Father. We're seeing that He reveals His loving Father. But more than that, He wants us to enter into a relationship not just with Himself, but in fact came on a mission that reflects the Father's heart and says, I'm going to reconcile all of God's children, chosen by His grace, predestined to be His. I'm going to reconcile them to my Father. I'm going to bring them home. And what that requires is for us to recognize this reality that we have, in fact, been separated from our Father by our sins. Sins separate us from the Father heart of God. We cannot pretend 
that we who were created to reflect His image in every thought, word, and deed are close to God when our thoughts, words, and deeds are full of frustration, when our gossip and our slander fill our mouths, when we impute evil motives to other people, when we are so overwhelmed with our frustration that we look at and despise people who are different from us and who have different weaknesses and different sins from us. All of those things separate us from the Father heart of God. Isaiah himself is going to be the one who records these words that our iniquities make a separation between us and our God and our sins hide His face from us so that God does not hear. So Jesus comes. His mission is to reconcile us to His Father By dealing with those sins, paying for those sins, removing those sins that were our barrier. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, we find there these words. All that we have been given is from God the Father, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. The Father sent the Son and said, I'm sending you into the world, perfectly God, fully man, fully God, to be that which mankind needs and to bring my children home. And then in verse 19, it goes on to say that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself bringing us into His house, not counting our trespasses against us. You say, how is it possible that God would not count these trespasses against me? For God is holy and He must punish sin. Great question, as Pastor Barnum used to say. So glad you asked. How did He accomplish this? By becoming our substitute. By taking our place. That's what Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, that in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is not some portion of God. All of God is fully present in Jesus Christ and pleased to dwell amongst man and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How? By making peace by the blood of His cross. By bearing the penalty that was due Adam, the penalty that was due Cain, the penalty that was due Seth, the penalty that was due Abraham, the penalty that was due Isaac and Jacob and David, and the penalty that was due you and me. All the way down the line of the human race, Jesus makes peace between God and man. One way to think of it is this, that as the second Adam, Jesus becomes the father of a reconciled humanity. Adam, our first biological father, led us into a world of brokenness and sin. But Jesus, as the true and better Adam, leads us into a reconciled relationship with God the Father. Romans 5.15 says that. If many have died through one man's trespass, that's Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
If Adam's sin could send the world into darkness, light entering into this world could change everything. The true Adam, the better Adam, the one that was all that Adam couldn't have been as the father of the human race has entered in, lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived and died the atoning death that we deserve to die and was raised so that we might live in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is this, that Jesus, the true and everlasting father, the perfect older brother, the true and better Adam has fulfilled his father's will to redeem a people for himself. That's why Isaiah can say this in Isaiah 63, verse 16, you are our father, even if our biological fathers, Abraham, rejects us and Israel doesn't acknowledge us. Even the people who aren't actually ethnically Jews, God's first chosen people to be a demonstration of His grace, you can be brought into the kingdom. For you, O Lord, our, are our Father, our Redeemer from old is your name. That's good news for you and me. In Jesus, God's plan of redemption, the grand undoing of all that is broken, the grand buying back becomes ours. So now, the third member of the Trinity lives within us, reminding us that we are God's children and heirs by God's grace. God sent forth His Son, and then God sent forth His Spirit. Jesus sent forth His Spirit to indwell us. So look at this as we close our reflection in Romans 8, 15. We did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption as sons and as daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. Brothers and sisters, I want to ask you a question today as we close. Are you living like you're actually a child of God? Jack Miller used to say that one of the fundamental problems for so many of us Christians is that we forget to live at the level that we were bought to live at. Specifically, that we forget to live as God's children. And His love is so great. His compassion so deep. His mercy so profound. And the working of His Spirit so transformative. It would be foolish for us to live as mere children of Adam and Eve when God has sent His Son, Jesus, to bring us home. Jesus, our everlasting Father, has revealed the Father to us and has reconciled the Father to us. So may His Spirit let us live in that reality this week. Let's pray.
Father God, take now these words, apply them deeply, effectively this week into our minds and into our hearts. Let not the enemy snatch away these truths, but bury them deep. Let them not enter into soil in our hearts that is shallow, that we might wither in the life realities that are to come and face us this week. Let us not be the kind of soil that brings forth all kinds of weeds and thorns that choke out this word. The cares of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desire for other things. Oh God, keep these things away from us. But take this word and bury it deep into us that we, your children, might bear fruit for your kingdom. This week we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.